get them all the time. Birthday cards, annoying email messages, voicemails asking why we haven't called lately. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month on B-Side, messages from family. These messages are usually pretty mundane, but today we'll hear stories about messages that are anything but ordinary. As we take you to the B-Side. First new message. Hi, Dal. Just calling to say hi. Uh, I just want to let you know that I'm tutoring from 4.30 to 5.30, my time, but then we'll be free after that. Um, so hope to talk to you later. Bye now. Hi, May. It's Dad. Uh, good news on your taxes. Everybody accepted the electronic filing, and uh, your refund is on its way. should be there April 4. Give me a call. Hey, it's your brother. Uh, I was just wondering if you got my email about the furniture and business cards. Uh, just wanted to know what you thought. So anyways, give me a call when you get this. Bye. These messages came from my family, and they're pretty typical. Mom will call asking where I've been, my dad wants to talk about money, and my brother, you never know with him. Throughout the show, we'll be bringing you messages left on the answering machines of the B-Side crew. To erase, press 7. To save, press 9. Our first story comes from producer Renee Gattel. Her dad wanted to keep in touch with her when she went away to college, so he sent her a postcard. And then another, and another, and another. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That's my dad. He's a bus driver for the Orange County Transportation Authority. Thank you. He's been driving a bus for 24 years. My best friend from college describes Orange County as 90 miles of strip mall between San Diego and Los Angeles. I love Orange County, but she's right. Bristol transfer the 57. Newport Transportation Center to the block at Orange. State College Boulevard and the Bray Mall. I grew up in Huntington Beach, Surf City, USA. Definitely not a neighborhood for a bus driver's daughter. The middle school kids would taunt me by singing, the wheels on the bus go round and round. And for verse two, Renee's dad on the bus says move on back. All this is by way of explaining something else about my dad, how he came to write me a postcard a day for every day I was in college. He sent me exactly 1,000. It says, Dear Renee, which I always started with DR, D period, R period, Y day, or yesterday, I took Taylor, which is my son, I took Taylor to see Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla really tore up New York City. Actually, the military did, trying to kill Godzilla. It was very corny, but Taylor loved it. I was, of course, rooting for Godzilla. They finally killed him when he got caught in the Brooklyn Bridge cables. Very sad. And then I always finished off my postcards with a heart and a... Nobody would know what it was unless you knew, in fact, what they were, but they were supposed to be praying hands. Love and prayers, Dad. When the first postcard came, I wasn't surprised or anything, just kind of glad to hear from home. The same with the second and third cards. I didn't keep them, because I didn't know they'd one day be part of something bigger than themselves. Dad says it was somewhere around card 75 that he decided he would write me every day for all four years. I was a little worried about you being homesick, which probably wasn't a problem at all for you at all. You were probably glad to be gone. But I, I was very proud of you. I wanted you to succeed. and. Uh, I was happy for what you were doing and just a way of patting you on the back, that's all. My dad is right. I was glad to be away from home. 
I come from a big family with lots of drama, and I wasn't in the least bit homesick. But that aside, I secretly loved the postcards, even the annoying ones. Dear Renee, have you looked for a dentist? Have you called Social Security about your benefits? Have you gone to church anywhere? Have you thought about going to church on Sunday? What do you do on Sunday mornings? Have you made plans for Thanksgiving? Do you read these postcards? Why? Please respond to my questions <laughs> or I'll be forced to commit postcard suicide. Love and prayers, Dad. Do you want some more ginger? Is this card a duplicate? He sent me postcards of every sort. Postcards of California, Disneyland beaches, the San Diego Zoo, holiday postcards, postcards cut out in funny shapes like one a slice of pizza and another a bottle of whiskey. He sent me free postcards you pick up at bookstores, pre-stamped U.S. Postal Service cards, makeshift postcards made out of photographs. He once wrote me from a Mexican restaurant, and he smeared a chunk of salsa on the corner of the card. And then he wrote a little arrow pointing to the salsa smear, and he wrote with his pen, salsa smear. I was studying Arabic at Mount Holyoke College in western Massachusetts, and at the time, I wore this really, really, really ugly army jacket that had big pockets in the front. And I'd go to the campus post office every day before lunch, and I'd check my mail and put the postcard in the pockets. And then I'd go to lunch, and at lunch, everyone would ask me to read the day's postcard. And I would, gladly, usually reading each one aloud to a different audience several times a day. And not just to my friends. People I barely knew wanted me to read them my dad's postcards. Across campus, I came to be known as the postcard girl. Although my dad was writing to just me, he sort of became a fill-in for other kids' dads. It's like he was writing on behalf of all the dads of all the students at Mount Holyoke. And that's why people craved to hear even the bizarre things dad would sometimes write. March 13, 98, 9.15 a.m., Mount Holyoke, card number 391. Dear Renee, have you considered the significance of having Friday the 13th during consecutive months? It would have to be February, March, number one. Number two, leap year would, would be present. So it won't happen in 2004. To the best of my calculations, there are the years 1903, 1914, 1925, 1931, 1942, 1953, 1959, 1970, 1981, his bus. Oh yeah, I would say 90% of them were on the bus, uh, either on my brakes, or I rode a few of them at red lights. As I was driving, I would think of what to say at the next red light, because you figure I'm at, I'm at the same red light three, four times a day. You know the timing of the light, you know you have uh, a minute, sometimes a minute and a half, and uh, I just try to make use of that minute and a half and, and jot something down. Is that at all dangerous? I don't think so. I. <laughs> You know, as soon as you take off, you, you put down your pen and paper and, and, and get back to work. But uh, actually, I found that if I didn't work, I would get behind on my postcard. So it was very much a work-oriented um, event for me. You know, speaking of it being work-oriented for you, I wonder if you, if you weren't a bus driver, if you had a white-collar job and you went into an office every day, if you had been able to write the postcards. Well, the truth be known, I... I find this job a bit uh, monotonous, and I'm always looking for something to liven up the day. Uh, 
I've taken lately to memorizing passages out of the Bible at red lights. What book are you in right now? <laughs> I chose the book of Job to start in. <laughs> My dad didn't set out to be a bus driver. He wanted to be a professional violist, and he studied viola at Cal State L.A. for a while. Remember the violin-playing character, Poindexter, from Revenge of the Nerds? That's exactly what my dad looked like, circa 1976. Then he met my mom. She got pregnant. He needed a job. Bam, he's been driving ever since. He doesn't hate his job. He says it gives him time to sort things out in his head. But it's still boring. The date is uh, 9-22-99. Mount Holyoke, car number 765, 1 p.m. Dear Renee, not all bus lines are created the same for writing postcards at red lights or reading, or balancing checkbooks, or anything else I do. I was told by a passenger once that I was the busiest bus driver she ever saw, besides driving a bus. I guess that speaks to my boredom. Love and prayers, Dad. So, yeah, the postcards are sweet, and I love them. But the bottom line is that he probably never would have written them if he hadn't have been a bus driver. It took two factors to produce the thousand cards. Love and boredom. He wrote the last card the day he and my stepmom and brothers boarded the train to come see me graduate. May 12, 2008 p.m., Mount Holyoke, card number 1000. Dear Renee, I'll never write you again. Just kidding. I'm glad I did this, but I'm equally glad it's over. You'll always be in my prayers. I'm looking forward to seeing you graduate. See you soon. Love and prayers, Dad. I miss getting the postcards, but... I wouldn't want my dad to still write me one a day. They had their time and place, and I'm an adult now. My thousand postcards fill up three plastic grocery store bags. I'm living in Alaska, and I lugged them all the way here. I don't really ever go back through them and reread them or anything, but I'll definitely never throw them out. They're a monument of my dad's love and proof that cool things can come out of a dull job. For B-Side, I'm Renee Gattel. Euclid transferred to the 37. Fountain Valley to beautiful La Habra. Yesterday at 7.18 p.m. Hello, little girl. This is your mom. Hey, I uh, enjoyed your emails today. I, I, <laughs> I think it's very funny that you decided to sew again after all these years. Um, good luck with your lessons. Love you. Bye-bye. I was in my car the other day, and I opened up the glove box, and there was this, like, black bra there. Apparently, Mom put it in there because she found it in my room, and... Well, beyond mom finding bras in my room and putting them in my car being weird, um, you know, before I call up every single girl I've ever dated, I was wondering if it was yours. 
So, yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. It's not urgent. It's just your birthday. Oh, well, I tried again, so I've tried twice now. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. When you leave a message on an answering machine or drop a card in the mail, the words aren't usually carefully planned and thought out. Meet me at the restaurant at 8 or thanks for the festive sweater. But what if that call or card became the last communication you ever had with that person? Jeff Chorney has this commentary on realizing that a message he sent his grandfather was the last. My grandfather died four years ago, one day before he was supposed to go to the hospital to have hip replacement surgery. Grandpa lived in Edson, a small town in Alberta, Canada, and I live in California. We kept in touch with cards around the holidays, and sometimes I called him for home repair advice. He had been an electrician and could fix anything. He was 78 years old and had been waiting for the surgery for a couple years. That's one of the downsides to Canada's socialized medicine. If you want care, you're prioritized and put on a list. I was excited when the operation was finally scheduled. Arthritis had bothered him for years, and near the end, just standing up was painful. I wanted to send him something to keep him company in the hospital. He was always doing crosswords, so I decided to give him a book of crossword puzzles. But I waited until the last possible moment to buy this present. I was very busy at the time. I had just started a new job and was working late hours. I remember being in a bookstore at 11 o'clock one night, about four days before his operation. Even if I mailed it then, the package still might not make it in time. I got him a collection of New York Times daily crossword puzzles, and I wrapped it up with a card. I had bought him similar books as gifts over the years. When I think of him now, I see him either in his workshop, fixing something, or sitting on his couch doing puzzles, just passing the time. It was my uncle who discovered him. He went to my grandfather's little house to pick him up and drive him into the city for his operation. But when my uncle arrived that afternoon, the house was empty. My grandfather's packed bags were waiting at the door. My grandfather was in the garage. He apparently had wanted to check out the car for the drive to the hospital. My uncle said the car's engine was still running, and it looked like my grandfather just collapsed while looking under the hood. When my mother went up to Alberta to settle things at his house, she asked me if I wanted any keepsakes. All I wanted was for her to try to find that package I had sent him. I needed to know if he'd received it, if he knew I was thinking about him before his surgery. Now that he was dead, I worried that I had procrastinated too long. She found it, although it wasn't packed with his things by the back door. Maybe he hadn't finished packing or just didn't want to bring it after all. But he had cut off the return address label, like he was planning to use it to write back. When I sent Grandpa that book of puzzles, I had no idea it was my last chance to let him know how I felt. If I could do it over, if I knew how meaningful that package would become, would I change what I sent him? I don't think so. On the card I included, I wrote, I figured you'd have some spare time to do extra crossword puzzles. Take care, and good luck. Love, Jeff. Jeff Chorney is a newspaper reporter living in Sacramento. You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-side. 
You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're sharing messages from family. Friday, 9, 16 a.m. If you're out protesting, I hope you didn't get arrested. Anyhow, guess who? Uh, give us a call and let us know what your plans are for the weekend, if any. Hi, sweetie pie. It's me. It's a beautiful Sunday. Thinking of you. Um, I just took out my the affair, the case of Alfred Dreyfus that you gave me. You and Carla gave me for my birthday. And you wrote in it, Mommy, enjoy for instilling identity and the belief in intellectual justice in your daughters. <laughs> mm, love always. That's very cute. Uh, hi, honey. Um, I was disappointed that you didn't come over on my 80th birthday, but you weren't feeling well, so I could understand that. And I will talk to you later. Goodbye. There's just something wonderful about hearing the voice of someone you love. Some messages are so great that we save them for months, occasionally going back and listening again just to feel that connection. Sarah Neal's grandfather left behind a volume of messages, and listening to them has helped her understand a man she hardly knew before he died. My grandfather, Ebert Whipple, was born in southern Indiana in 1910. He always carried chewing gum in his shirt pocket. His left hand was paralyzed from polio. He wore pressed trousers every day. He talked about dying a lot, which I hated, and he always called me Sally. He died in 1989, and that's all I managed to remember about him until my mom started finding messages he left behind. I grew up two hours north of my grandparents, and I visited them every summer at their house on the corner of Washington and Market Streets, the same house where my mother lives today. She calls me often. I found something, she says, and she tells me about a collection of name tags that say, Hello, my name is Ebert Whipple, class of 1938, carefully pasted to the inside of a closet, or a note he scribbled to her on a page of a book she gave him in 1969. It said, Reread in 1984. Thank you. This is a wonderful present. Two months ago, she found a message for me. Good morning, Sally. This is your maternal grandfather speaking to you this morning, Hebert Whipple, from a cozy little broadcasting uh, recording uh, studio in 1007 West Market Street, Salem, Indiana. Today is the 10th day of January, 1974. Now, if you think it's easy, you ought to sit down with one of these microphones sometime and try talking to a two-year-old girl that isn't present. Now, sir, it's not the easiest thing in the world to sit down with a microphone and just kind of talk about something that you don't have any business talking about. Apparently, back in 1975, when I was a toddler, my grandfather sat himself down on the front porch with his tape recording equipment and started talking. I think he expected my mom to find the tapes a little sooner, maybe when I was in college, certainly before I got married. There are advantages in marrying a poor, ambitious boy who will make a success and be a self-made man. That's pretty good kind. There are also some advantages to marrying a smart, alert, athletic young fellow that uh, 
can go in business with his dad or uh, uncle and uh, eventually inherit a million dollars or some advantages to that. Is anybody still listening? Everybody's still listening. Hold up your hand. <laughs> ah, there it is. When I hear this, I picture him sitting on that porch, thinking about how scary it will be for me to make a very big decision at a time in life when I haven't seen or done enough to feel quite qualified to make it. And I hear that he wanted to be there for me. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if he's old-fashioned and the tapes are a couple of years late. They're like a little valentine to me. A chance to know my grandfather as a real, tangible person, as an adult. I suppose your grandma Whipple and I have had as happy a marriage as anybody could be. This is my favorite story. Now, it wasn't always smooth sailing. (laughs) It's on the second side of tape two, and it's the one I learned the most from. According to my grandfather, he and my grandmother fought quite a bit when they first got married. So to stop arguing, they decided to alternate being the boss. He got to be in charge the first week, and she took the second. Well, you know, that had some interesting ramifications. It was a lot of fun, you know, a young married couple. Uh, if I got a little bit uh, teed off with Louise, I could tell her to go over and stand in the corner for five minutes, and she'd have to go stand there for five minutes. <laughs> oh, that was fun. <laughs> but you must wait until the next week. <laughs> if she told me to go stand in the corner for 10 minutes, then I had to go stand in the corner for 10 minutes. Well, I'll tell you what that finally led to. That finally led to my deciding that um, I'd better be awfully, awfully good to her the week that I was boss, so that the week she was boss, (laughs) she wouldn't take advantage of it. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we actually did this. This is really the truth. Some types of humor just aren't available to you when you're young. I don't know if adults hide this stuff or children don't understand it and tune it out. I didn't even know that my grandfather, who seemed so obsessed with death, had a sense of humor. But there it is, recorded for the ages. My dear, sweet grandparents sent each other to the corner. It's beautiful. Before listening to these tapes, I thought the messages my mother found, the note in the book, the name tags plastered to the closet, were my grandfather's way of reassuring himself leaving a reminder of his existence to be found after he died, but I've changed my mind. I think my grandfather left messages behind because he had a lot to share and realized he didn't have enough time left to share it all. Think about it. If you really loved your granddaughter, but she was too little to understand who you were or to understand the advice you had to give, what would you do? I think sitting yourself down on the porch and recording seven hours of tape so she could listen to it when she's 30 works pretty well. Well, anyway, here's best wishes to you. And uh, don't be surprised if you don't agree with everything I say. I didn't say what I had uh, in mind with the idea that it was right. I just wanted you to think about it. Draw your own conclusions. Make your own decisions. Because you're the one that's going to have to live by your choices. I'm not. 
So make the choices and then abide by them. Make them wisely enough that it won't be too much difficulty to abide by them. And with that in mind, I think I'll say um, good afternoon. Bye now. Side contributor Sarah Neal occasionally still listens to her grandfather's advice. The rest of the time, she's a grad student at UC Berkeley's journalism school. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew this month is Peter Crimmins, Dave Gilson, Emily Gunnison, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on May 14th. In the meantime, On the Record is back April 30th. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.